Hello, and thank you for joining us today on the Gentle Art of Crushing It show, where we focus on learning and sharing with our listeners all there is to know about how to create success in our lives. This show stands on the shoulders of giants. Our mission is to empower and inspire our listeners to create the life of their dreams whilst having a blast in the process. Let's celebrate life together. Welcome to the show. Welcome everyone to the ROI edition where we break down investing in retail, office, and industrial real estate. My name is David Lyons and I'm your host today. My goal is to help you, the listener, confidently invest in these assets so you can live life on your terms. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Joel Owens. Joel is the principal broker investor at NNN Invest, Bigger Pockets moderator, guest speaker, expert consultant, consultant, entrepreneur, and author of Triple Net Riches. Joel worked hard to make the Triple Net lease world a little more approachable for those who have the means, but not the full extent of knowledge to invest in this little known nugget of commercial real estate ownership. As an entrepreneur, he is a self-starter, having risen out of a low-income upbringing and now runs his business with a team of experts to engage with full to engage with fellow multimillionaire clients who wish to grow passive income. Joel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Cool. So quick little tidbit before we get into questions is it's really cool for me to be interviewing Joel because my way of connecting with Joel was through Bigger Pockets. And I thought I was early in in becoming aware of Bigger Pockets in like 2016. And Joel interviewed with Bigger Pockets in 2013. But not only that, he was actually at Bigger Pockets and involved with Bigger Pockets as a moderator before Brandon Turner was. Um, so for those of you who follow Bigger Pockets, you know Brandon Turner was a pivotal part of their kind of upbringing and development. And Joel was there before Brandon. So I thought that was a pretty neat um, neat fact about Joel. Um, Joel, before we jump into questions and, and kind of triple net properties and so on and so forth, can you start by telling us a quick summary of your background and how you got involved in real estate? Sure. And I, uh, you know, the thing with Brandon Turner, like he actually worked for bigger pockets, like in a pay capacity. So, you know, when Josh was the only one working at the company, there was, you know, two or three of us as volunteer moderators. And then, you know, Brandon came on later on. That's when he started hiring people, but that was years later after Josh had been working a bunch of hours. So I just want to clarify that I, I, I didn't like work for bigger pockets where they pay me, uh, but we were volunteer status, but yeah, bigger pockets. It used to be a one page website with a couple of bank foreclosure links in the middle of it before they added forms or any of that stuff. It was way back. Um, but yeah, how I got started out in uh, real estate, I owned a, um, well, I was in the food business for a couple of decades I worked for Domino's Pizza, one of the largest franchisees in the country, Cowabunga Incorporated. And I learned all the different facets of that from driving to management to eventually not a Domino's Pizza, but I own my own restaurant. Um, and I just didn't like the hours, even though the money was good. It was very long hours. And my friend that owned a landscaping company sold off his landscaping company and got into residential real estate. And I'd always seen all the different, you know, TV ads when I was a kid growing up about invest in real estate, do this, do that. And so I was always intrigued by that. So I went and got my license and I did the residential thing all of about two months. And it was about a bunch of nights and weekends, which I was trying to get away from owning my own restaurant. And so um, what happened is, is at Domino's Pizza, one of the drivers there was this older guy that was another driver. 
and him and his brother inherited a um, laundromat cleaner, and they've been approached by a developer to buy out their laundromat for the land on it. And so um, they asked me to review the contract. I did. We met with a developer. Afterward, the developer called me and said I caught every single out in the contract to extend it. Um, and no one had ever done that. They caught like one of them and they usually had like six of them in there. Um, and so they brought me on board to assemble the other 18 pieces of land. It was like a 650,000 square foot mixed use retail development on about 25 acres. And so I spent the first like two years, uh, learning to do that. And then after that, the economic cycle changed and people were buying existing buildings because they were cheaper to buy those than to construct in an economic downturn. And so from there, I switched from um, putting the land deals together with the developers to um, doing the large apartment buildings, brokering those. And then eventually I went out and got my broker's license uh, from an agent so that I could open my own company. And I'd already always been intrigued by businesses. So I just naturally gravitated toward working with businesses and then that's when I got into the, the triple net retail properties. Very interesting story and just an incredible journey with a continual kind of trajectory upwards. And I want to dive a little deeper on just that segue for you into commercial real estate, which it sounds like was when you were approached to review this lease or this contract and you did that and really impressed somebody and they kind of um, asked you to become more involved. And at that point, it sounds like you didn't have a ton of commercial real estate experience. Um, so how, how did that work for you? How did you have the confidence to do that? How did you figure out stuff? Was it practical stuff that you know somebody who, who had a will could just kind of figure out? Or did you know, have to do a lot of research and stuff to figure out what, what was important to look through in that? So the developer would give me a, a big map with all the parcels, and then they'd give me a strike price for each parcel to try to lock up the, the piece of land for a certain price, like this piece, 500,000 because it's further in the back, this piece for 900,000 because it's more on the road frontage. So it's worth more. Um, and so they had an overall budget uh, for me to get the pieces of land under contract for. In between doing that, uh, they didn't have a lot on the internet back in the day. So I would go to Barnes and Noble and I'm a big reader. I'd go to Barnes and Noble and go to real estate section and I would just, sit there with the sofas, I would take like four books, read three of them. And then I would have one that was like so good that I had to read it again because each page didn't have any fluff in it. It was like so good. And I spend like the 10 bucks of money that I had and would take that home and then reread it a bunch of times and just kind of build um, the super high quality books like that. And so I would just keep going back to Barnes and Noble and just because you could sit there for free and, and read the books off the shelf until I had read like the whole real estate section, like every single book that was on there. Um, and those were the early days. And then basically my, my journey is kind of trial by fire. So in a, in a typical situation, you go get a four-year college degree in real estate or an analyst degree. You go work at one of the big commercial firms, listing firms, they put you on a team with a senior director and there's three other people. Um, and then with their splits, they have to do tons of volume because like if there's a hundred thousand commission, 50,000 goes to the parent company and the three people left on the team split the 50,000. So if you're a junior agent, you might get like 8,000 out mm -hmm. of that, out of that 50,000. So today's so like where I make a hundred thousand at a time or 200,000, they have to do like 10 deals to my one deal because they're working for a company. 
But, you know, my path has always been unconventional in life. And so I just read anything I could on the internet in any forum, validated the information, read all the books, uh, leaned on the developer for their decades of experience and just kept increasing my knowledge as I went along. That's awesome. And so I really want to pull out one kind of key piece of that, which is, you know, you essentially self-educated yourself for close to free or, you know, 10, 20, 50, a couple hundred bucks at Barnes and Noble in a year, maybe or two. Um, and, you know, right now today, a lot of people want to throw money at problems, um, maybe just get a college degree because that's what every, everyone else is doing, buy an expensive course because, you know, it promises them everything they want. Um but really, I think to this day, the best way to get ahead in any industry is to self-educate yourself with books, reading, wherever that is. And then the second piece is you applied it and you applied it by working for somebody who had experience who could also teach you and then you could apply your knowledge. So I just think that's a really um, great piece for people listening to go and apply and get to where they're wanting to go, be it in commercial real estate or anywhere um, without having to spend enormous amounts of money on education. So I, I think that's a great uh, story there. So next, uh, so your specialty now, Joel, is triple net leases, right? Uh, could you walk through the maybe just the three most common lease types being triple net, double net, and ground leases, and uh, how each of those work and what the difference is between each of those? Okay, so an absolute triple net lease is where the tenant pays for the property taxes, the insurance, and the maintenance to the property. It's like owning a stock, except you get real estate benefits and you get mailbox money every month and you do nothing, basically. You know, you, you might you might spend an, a half an hour a year or an hour a year to update if you got a loan, the, the your financials to the bank or something, or if you get a tax bill, you might have to forward it to the tenant and they pay it or something. Uh, but really there's nothing that, that you have to do whatsoever. And a double net lease is dependent on what's ever written into that lease. So my clients, we only buy when it's like roof and structure. So if it's a new building and we get an inspection by an engineer before we close on it and it's, the building is sound and everything looks good with that. And then the roof, there's typically a you know 15 to 25 year roof warranty, depending on what quality of flat roof the developer put on when they built the building. Um, and so you, generally with that, there's nothing to do. Uh, the ones that are very involved are the ones where, you know, you're responsible for the uh, parking lot and the utility lines and the windows and all this crap. And then even if that sometimes the tenant will reimburse you, but even then it's like a, it's like a manage, ongoing management from more like to an active. It's not as active as owning like an apartment building or dealing with residential houses. Mm -hmm. But a lot of my clients are like me, you know, they could be making seven to eight figures a year and they don't have time to breathe. Time is worth more than money once you get wealthy. So people need to remember that time is worth more than money when you get wealthy because um, you have tons of money, not, not very, not very much time. Um, so these people want hands off, you know, they don't want to deal with getting someone out to fix, a, you know, a weld on a, on, on the garbage, the big garbage can on the outside or something, you know, a complaint from the tenant. They don't want to deal with that crap. You know, they're, they're wealthy. They're not, you know, so when you're looking at these triple net properties, you got to look at the hassle factor that comes along with it, what cap rate it's at, the strength of the tenant. And then with the absolute triple net and the double net, you get, you know, tax benefits. You can usually write off, you know, say 
you know, 75% building value to 25% land value of the purchase price. Um, now, if it's an urban core area and it's, you could have 90% building or 95% building because there's not really a parking lot there. You know, it's just, it's just a walkability factor. Um, and then you can do, you know, uh, advanced cost segregation with a property to uh, further um, reduce down your taxes and how much you can reduce down will depend on what type of property you buy. So for instance, a DeVita dialysis has a lot of plumbing and electrical in it. Uh, more than a typical tenant. And so maybe you can depreciate up to 30, 35% of the building value year one. Um, you know, in, in that situation versus others might be like, you know, 20% or something like that. The ground lease, there's no, um, you just own the ground. So there's no tax depreciation there. One of the benefits to the ground lease is the rent is typically below market. So if you had a, say an absolute triple net Chick-fil-A in an area with a certain rent per foot, that Chick-fil-A might cost $7 million to purchase. Whereas if it's a ground lease and the rents are half because it's a ground lease because you don't own the building, that Chick-fil-A might be three and a half million to purchase. So it allows you to purchase in strong suburban to urban core areas at lower prices because of the uh, lower rents that come with a ground lease. Now, typically at the end of the ground lease, um, typically at the end of the ground lease, it has it where if they don't renew the option period, then you get the building that the tenant constructed for free. And then you can move the rents closer to the absolute triple net market rents, increase the value of the property even further. Got it. Okay. So the appealing part of these leases primarily, um, or the, the leases that you're kind of pursuing for your clients are much more passive and absolute triple net and ground lease where there's very little involved from the client or the investor to manage uh, the property. Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, you know, typically there's an arc. So what I'd like to say is when you make your first million dollars, a lot of times you, you have a mindset shift. So people that are trying to build wealth and then they're in the wealth building phase instead of the stabilization or the preservation phase they're thinking about breaking free from having to work a job or something to pay the bills. Once you make your first million and you, for most people, they can break free from, you know, having to work for somebody and they can think about what they're passionate about. Your mindset changes. You value time more than the money. And so, you know, a doctor making a million bucks a year doing surgery that doesn't have time to breathe would much rather take a 6% cash on cash return then own an apartment building at 10% where they're having to see if the manager's doing what they're supposed to do. And these tenants, someone burned part of the building down and, you know, on and on and on of crap that you have to deal with. Once you have so much money, you know, if I get if my net worth, if I invest a hundred thousand and I'm getting a 12% return, that's only $12,000. But if I invest $2 million and I'm getting a 7% return, that's $140,000. I can live off $140,000. I can't live off of $12,000. You know, right. so so w once you get up to a certain scale, your your mindset completely changes when you have multi millions of dollars as as to what you value. Most of these, most of these triple net deals, you know, I, I analyzed um, inflation on the government website over about the last fifty years, and I took out the outliers, the ones where it was, uh, you know seven or 8% inflation. And then the ones where it was negative inflation, which was only maybe four or five years out of the 50. And then the average inflation came out to about 2.25% a year. 
So if I can buy a triple net property before the interest rates went up, our typical deal was like, you know, which is not now because interest rates are higher, but typically you could buy something at say uh, five and a half cap, put interest rate of three and a half percent on it, have a 200 basis point spread between the interest rate and the cap rate. Your cash on cash was maybe about five to six percent with a 30 year amortization with a 10 year fixed loan. And then uh, with your mortgage equity buildup pay down before any tax benefits, you were hitting like a 10% return. And in normal times, if you got two and a quarter percent inflation, if you're outpacing inflation by three to four and you're already worth millions, multi-millions of dollars and you're passive, you got investment grade credit tenant, Standard Poor's rated in business 50, 100 years, um, backed by, you know, five, 10, 15,000 stores, uh, you'll take that all day long, you know, because you, you, don't, you don't need the money. These people right. just need a place to park the money somewhere, you know? Um, right. So, so that's the, the mindset's kind of different. I get, you know, I get people all the time. They're worth like 2 million. They come from selling an apartment building. They make maybe a hundred thousand a year. And it's a hard jump for them to, you know, put 800,000 or a million dollars down on triple net property for $3 million and go passive. Cause in their mind, they, they're like, okay, I make an active 15%. I'd like to make, 12% and be passive with triple net. Well, well, it doesn't work that way. And especially in the lower price points. So anything 3 million and below in price, about 75% of the buyers are all cash and 25% are finance. When you go up to, you know, five, six, seven, eight million dollars, then it reverses. You have mm-hmm. maybe, you know, 75% are loans and 25% are all cash. Because even if I have 20 million cash, I might not want to put $8 million cash into one property, have that concentration of cash in one property. I want to put 35, 40% down, have about 3 mil in there. And then I want to diversify and buy one or two other properties and geo diversify in different markets and own different dirt in different locations with different tenants um, and, and have my money split out. Um, so that kind of, you know, it, it's just a total different way of thinking when you get into the higher numbers and and the passive returns. Right, right. It's much more wealth preservation, diversification, tax benefits, as opposed to um, trying to make active income. Um, And then one point I want to clarify too, is your focus, it sounds like you focus a lot on retail. Is that what you exclusively focus on for yourself and your clients? Or do you also look at other assets like industrial or other things that may be triple net? Yeah, so... um, Triple net's all encompassing. So if it's an industrial credit grade, credit grade rated company, uh, this triple net, I do those. If it's a medical, uh, this absolute triple net, I do those. So okay. I, I, I review about a thousand nationally a week across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, have clients all across the country. Um, net worth from uh, seven figures to uh, I've got a couple of families that are 10 figures, they're billionaire families. Um, so it's all across the spectrum. Of course, when you go up the ladder, you know, there's less people that have 200 million or 500 million or a billion versus there's a lot more people that have maybe five or 10 million, you know, or, or 20 million or something like that. There's about 4% of the U.S. population are millionaires. So it equates about 14 million people in the U.S. are millionaires right now. So uh, there's a lot of millionaire, there's a lot of money, um, and a lot of capital out there. And then, you know, in my age of 48, so I do two things basically. So, and I do single tenant and multi-tenant. So I do retail centers also, but we're just talking about single tenant here because that's like a whole other show just to talk about 
retail centers. I mean, it gets a lot of people, a lot of people think, you know, there's people that own multifamily. They just see a high cap rate versus what they're seeing in multifamily on the retail side. And they think, oh, I can't lose, you know, and they know nothing about this asset class and they come in and they just get snookered, you know, and they get destroyed um, because, you know, you're looking at a, whatever, a six and a half cap. Well, if it's a Starbucks and they're paying $40 a foot and that's market rent, the odds of them being there in 10 years on their 10 year lease is, is very good. They're not going to go away. They're going to keep paying the rent. But if a mix of the center has, you know, some mom and pop tenant that they put in at market rents at 40 bucks a foot, if they go out, you got lost rent downtime. And the next tenant, you got to pay tenant improvements. You got to pay leasing commissions. You got to pay attorney's fees. And then you're lucky if you get the same rent again, you're out hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know? And so these people can, you know, lose some of these tenants and backfill them. But if there's no way for the rents to go up and there's all these costs, they're losing money. You know, um, sometimes the rents will even be above uh, market that are in place. So you're buying a six and a half cap, the rents at 40 a foot and the rent for that 3000 square foot box size is $30 a foot. So you're really buying like a five cap when you underwrite it. So, you know, um, a, a lot, a lot of people don't understand these principles. They just get, you know, sucked in and, you know, in the broker world, like I said, because of the split structure, the listing brokers, whether it's a good, bad, crappy property, they're just trying to sell it to whatever sucker they can for, for on behalf of their seller because that's how they make their money. They got to do volume to, you know, they got to sell like these senior directors. They make maybe like 800000 a year, 900000 a year after their splits with their teams and everything. But I mean, they're having to sell hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of properties to do that because yeah. of their split structure. So they're, they're just going to sell you on whatever it is versus like, with me, when I work with buyers, they sign an exclusive agreement to work with me. I look at their financials. We get them pre-qualified with my capital markets mortgage broker that's 40 years in the business. And and we can wait. You know, I tell them if it takes two, three, four months to find the right property for you, that's what we're going to do. Because I don't need the money. I could retire today. I, I, I don't need the money. So I can tell them this is a piece of crap property. Don't buy it because I don't want to sell them something. And then it goes vacant or has a problem. And then they're going to call me to fix it. Right, right. And I'm already wealthy. I don't have time for that. I've got like a mom that's turning 80 years old. got a three-year-old son. I got a wife. And then I got my exercise and my life and everything else. I don't have any extra time to be fixing problems. So, you know, like during the economic downturn with coronavirus, none of my clients had it where a tenant wasn't paying rent. We had all investment grade credit tenants, paid like clockwork, no problems. You know, the ones that had the problems... The ones of the Bojangles where it's a 10, 10 unit franchisee that's getting a PPP loan that, that's saying to the, to the landlord, oh, I'm going to go under. You need to help me out here, bro. You know, um, those are the ones that got pounded, you know, and I and I know that. So that's why I don't sell people on that stuff. Right. That, and that's a good point. And it, it touches on another point that I want you to dive deeper in, which is types of tenants. Um, and you mentioned, you know, National Credit Mom and Pup. Can you walk through that spectrum of types of tenants? And uh, from, you know, high end to low end and and how you kind of determine that. Yeah. So um, I call it my five levels is what I created. And so the, the best example I'll give somebody is like um, they're familiar with Young Brands, you know, that owns Taco Bell. Right. Sure. So Young Brands is a parent corporation. So the ultimate guarantee would be by an investment credit credit grade tenant 
where it's the parent company guaranteeing the lease that backed all, you know, 25,000 Taco Bells, just an example. I'm not saying, you know, Young Brands is a credit company. Um, I'm just giving an example here. But, you know, then below that, you would have a subsidiary of Young Brands, which is say maybe like 10 states worth of Taco Bells. That is like, you know, 700 Taco Bells or 1,000 Taco Bells. And then below that, you would have a large franchisee that's maybe been in the business 20 years within the Taco Bell franchise that has 100 and something units. And then below that, you would have a small franchisee that only owns maybe a single Taco Bell or a couple of Taco Bells. And then, it, and then below that would be, you know, a mom and pop thing that's not even related to a brand. So they have no advertising, no marketing, no manuals to help them out. It's like Joe's Taco Stand or something, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so down the spectrum... From highest to lowest quality, that that's kind of the spectrum there. And then, you know, the, the more you go down in the spectrum, the more heavily you have to underwrite them. Because Standard & Poor's is looking at these credit grade companies on a daily basis, underwriting their credit, look, you know, looking at their financials and everything. When you get down to the mom and pop level, you know, sometimes there's nothing to look at or they mortgaged half their house to start something up or they have little experience. Um, and then you got to look at, you know, what rent are they paying per foot? Because the way, the way I look at those type of deals is if it's in a growing area and there's a lot of national tenants that are moving in that area, but we can buy a Popeye's two unit franchisee and they're only paying for that 3000 square foot building. They're paying 20 bucks a foot and rents in that market are 40 mm-hmm. and I can buy it at a higher cap rate for cash. Then if Popeye's stays and pays, great. I get a super high cap rate, high cash on cash. If they go out and die, I can backfill them at 30 or 35 bucks a foot and make a ton of money, even after the tenant improvements, leasing commissions, attorney's fees. But if they're paying 38 bucks a foot in a 40 foot market where the investment grade tenants paying 40 a foot, and then they're paying 38 for some crap franchisee with no experience, the, the, the upside is low and the risk is high on those type of right. properties. And then when you go to get a loan too, I want to mention this, when you go and get a loan, Say it's a Walgreens, when it's investment grade credit tenant like that, they'll put like 80% qualifying for the loan on the tenant because the credit's so strong and they'll put 20% on the borrower. When you start moving down to say a large franchisee, it's like 50-50. And then when you're talking small franchisee, mom and pop, they put like 80% on the borrower and 20% on the tenant. And they make it much more hard, harder for you to qualify for that loan. You got to be making a lot more money. You got to sign full recourse guarantee because they know that tenant's so weak that if they go out and there's no rent coming in, they need to know that you can pay that mortgage until you get another tenant in there. Got it. So that's a really good point. So to recap, the quality of the tenant in their in their credit kind of value of the tenant uh, is very important. And it's important, one, for, for you in terms of the surety of them paying and remaining in the building. And then secondly, for lending, the higher quality tenant is going to make lending easier and going to the lender is going to put more of the burden or, or kind of the qualification for the loan onto the tenant as opposed to you. So those two things being the primary benefits of working with higher quality tenant credits that are either national, regional, have more backing behind them as opposed to a mom and pop who maybe has one store, or maybe even a couple, but um, but not the backing of, of a regional or national credit. Yeah, that's, that's uh, correct. And uh, typically these buyers, the mistake they make is they get sucked in by something that looks like a hundred basis points higher on the uh, cap rate, Mm -hmm. but then it's a crap tenant. And then when they go to the bank and the bank says, well, it's a crap tenant. So instead of 
30% down with this, you know, investment grade credit. Now you're going to have to put 45, 50% down. And instead of giving you a 30 year AM and 10 year fixed, we're going to give you a five year fixed and a 20 year, uh, 20 year AM because we want heavy pay down because the tenant's so weak. And then when they model out and the interest rates can be a lot higher too, probably a hundred basis right. points higher. And when you model all that out, that extra hundred basis points is actually less of a return than if you would have bought the investment grade credit tenant because you get a lot better loan terms. Right. Okay. Really good point. So don't be sucked into a higher cap rate, which means a higher return, at, at least on the surface, all other things being equal if it's a lower quality tenant. Um, can you also, also touch on kind of desirable tenant types in terms of their business and what that looks like in the economy and um, and, and kind of the most desirable tenant types? Yeah, so the tenant types are going to vary by price range. So there's different tenants that are available in the ten or fifteen million dollar price range versus the two or three million dollar price range. If you're talking about a two million dollar price range, it's probably something like a quick service restaurant or uh, a dollar store or maybe a small bank or something like that. When you get into the Walgreens and the Davida Dallas's, um, those are typically in, in a sit down restaurant. So those are typically maybe around four million and up in price. And then if you're looking at a Lowe's or Home Depot or a Costco or a Super Walmart, those are generally about $10 million and up. And then the medical properties, they can be anywhere from three to 10 million plus. It just depends on the tenant type, how you know big their building is um, and things like that. When, when we focus on tenants, we focus on location. I call it dirt first. That's a word phrase I made up, uh, dirt first. So I kind of have a unique view of looking at things. So I'm an investor myself. And then I worked with the developers on development deals. I'm a developer now. And then I'm a principal broker. So I have a 360 degree view of, of looking at a value of a property. Um, and so that's why with the tenant types, there's certain ones after, you know, I probably looked at like a million properties over the last two decades that I've reviewed. And so you um, recognize patterns after a while. Like I'll see like which ones went dark with certain tenants. And so then, you know, certain tenants that aren't good, like um, workout gyms aren't good, um, you know, uh, vape stores, uh, marijuana places. Um, uh, the ones that I like are like kind of internet resistant type tenants. They're, they're sticky type tenants. So like medical have like heavy build out to it, tenant improvements, and they stay for a long time and they don't want to move. Um, so there's, there's certain types of tenants when I'm analyzing these properties that I'm looking for. And that's, that's important when you're looking at a retail center versus single tenant, because you want to see the mix of the center. Um, okay. So there's just, that's kind of why people lean on my experience. You know, they kind of read a news article and they're kind of interested in triple net and they have a theory about how it works, but they're not someone that's, you know, done like a billion dollars in sales on, on the, on the triple net side and has that knowledge, that everyday knowledge of how the market actually works and how to properly evaluate this stuff. Yeah, that's great. And so let, let's say you identify a property for a client um, on the surface. It looks good. Good tenant. Let's say it's a Walgreens um, and, you know, the surface level information presented in the off offering memorandum looks good in terms of, you know, years left on the lease, that sort of stuff. What, what are you looking um, in terms of due diligence? What kind of stuff are you reviewing and I know there's a long list, maybe like the top three to five things that you're looking for in due diligence to make sure that what you're buying is is what you think you're getting and to kind of eliminate and address any risk involved in that property. So 
the first thing is the lease. So, so a lot of these offering memorandums or flyers are done by the junior agents on these listing broker teams, or they're done by a virtual assistant, back office person, or grunt. And they're just like slamming these things out. So a lot of times what they have listed in the offering memorandum or flyer is not accurate. It's not correct. You know, and so my job is I go in and I ask the listing broker or the developer more follow-up questions because it's different in triple net than it is in residential. So the typical process is I do a non-binding letter of intent that has a confidentiality component. And I want to look at a lease in advance before we move to the purchase and sale stage because I want to look for any issues that weren't disclosed in the offering memorandum and ask follow-up questions. And this is important for two reasons. Number one, when you negotiate a purchase and sale agreement, there's a commercial retail attorney on both sides. And there's a Word document that's custom redlined back and forth. And, and it's it's different for every single property. There's not one the same. They don't use a template. If they, it's a custom document that goes back and forth. So that cost alone is thousands of dollars. The other thing is if you're doing a 1031 exchange and you got 45 days to ID, you ID a property and you go off the offering memorandum and you hadn't read the full lease and the amendments and the addendums. And then you make that as a selection and then you do a purchase and sale and you find out there's some massive problem and now you got to go to selection two or three and they're already under contract. Now you're screwed. Now you have a failed exchange. So that's the number one thing that I look at. And then in addition to that, I'm looking at, you know, is this a rural, small suburban, strong suburban, urban core area? Is it in a coal belt state, mid belt state, warm belt state? Uh, what are the traffic counts in this corridor where the property is located at? Is it on the going to work side or going to home side? Has the traffic for that corridor stayed the same at 40,000 cars a day, been going on an upward trend or a downward trend where that area is kind of dying off and the traffic's moving away somewhere else? Um, and then I'm looking at the, uh, the income levels uh, of the area. And then I'm looking at uh, other junior anchors around the property. So if we buy an Aspen Dental at a six cap, maybe there's a Chick-fil-A right next to it that has a lot of daily traffic that's going to make my property more valuable, but the Chick-fil-A is selling for a four cap. And so I want to own the six cap for higher yield, but I want the, the Chick-fil-A to give me that feeder traffic. Same thing if there's a Costco or a Sam's Clubs behind it, given those daily visit drivers, you know, or grocery store, they're going to keep going by my site, make my dirt uh, more valuable. So those are kind of the, there's a lot of other stuff that I look at, like over a hundred different things, but those are the kind of the main ones. Okay. Awesome. So to recap, and, and I like that you pointed out that you're looking at, for example, the lease before you get into, you know, purchase and sale agreement, because once you get into that, there's costs for attorneys. And then once you get into due diligence, there's even more costs when you get into, you know, environmental surveys, appraisals, and all those things. So I appreciate you pointing that out. Um, and I knew I know there's a lot more in due diligence, which is the reason for a buyer who's maybe on their first or second deal to ha work with a broker who can guide them through all of that because it, it is an intense process in the commercial real estate world. Um, I'm also curious, I know triple net real estate tends to lend itself to being more passive, more hands-off, as opposed to other you know things like, say, multifamily. But I know there is also ways to add value in triple net real estate. Do you come across, uh, you know, kind of opportunities to add value in triple net deals? Are there any specific deals or kind of strategies that come to mind when you think about adding value to a triple net uh, property? Sure. So there's two things that I do. So I work with my clients where they buy something and I make a commission on that as a principal broker. And then the other side of it is value add which I do a lot of. So 
I'll buy like a vacant single tenant building or a retail center and I'll lease it up and, and turn it around, buy it for cash and, and, and turn it around. And when I got too much of my cash out, uh, I'll syndicate it with my, not really syndicating out to people I don't know, but just people I've built up thousands of, you know, tens of thousands of contacts over the years. And so I've got them in my database. And so I can just say, Hey, looking at doing a race for this, you know, your credit investor, you want in, you know, and it is a hundred thousand, you know, minimum at a time. I do have some clients that buy value add, like you, you can buy a, uh, retail center that say 85% occupied where you can still get a good loan on it. And then you can lease up the remaining 15%. And then some of the tenants that are existing there are below market. And so you can get them out and backfill it with stronger tenants, which then cap rate compresses the value of your property to make it more valuable. And then also you can um, uh, develop uh, next to the monument sign. If it's got a huge parking lot, uh, you can carve those out and, you know, ground lease to tenants or develop a building for them, build a suit, or the developer can buy out pieces of those and you can just sell them off uh, for profit. Another thing uh, that you can do is you can buy a retail center at a higher cap rate. So say you buy a $10 million center for an eight cap, but it came with these out parcels that are all part of the same tax parcel, like a Chick-fil-A, Starbucks, whatever. After you close on that, you can work to deparcel. We call it deparcelizing a property where they stand alone on their own. And then I can sell the Chick-fil-A for a four cap, you know, and when I bought the whole thing at an eight cap. So there's a bunch of different ways to create value. I work with clients that buy stuff for like, you know, 5 million value add or something like that that work with me exclusively because I still make six figures for my time because it's a lot of time. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't help people that, you know, like if I buy a restaurant to turn around and I'm buying it for 500,000 cash and I want to make half a million to a million of profit of upside, I'm not interested in doing that for someone else because I'm only making like 15,000 commission. It's not worth my time. My average deal, I'm making six figures now or more just on the broker right. side. So, yeah. you know, where I'm at in my career, they can find a junior agent that'll help them with that, but they won't have much experience mm-hmm. at all. You know, they're, you know, cause the, cause the senior directors, like, you know, the people at my level are like the senior directors on the listing broker side. They're meeting with REITs, pension fund companies mm-hmm. to take big portfolios of listings. And then they're having their medium level agents and their junior agents calling all the buyers to try to sell the crap, you know, um, that that's what right. they're doing, you know? So I don't work on that smaller stuff for, clients because it's not worth my time. But I do buy value add where people invest with me. And then I do help people with value add if, if it's a certain price level, you know, um, th- then I help them, you know, create that value. Understood. So working with your clients primarily for higher value properties and, you know, stabilized uh, quality tenant properties where that's what they're looking for. And then for yourself and, uh, you know, the fundraising you do occasionally sounds like for potential value add projects. I am curious when you buy a vacant property and you're kind of approaching that value add um, approach or strategy, which is very, very lucrative um, when you can pull it off, of course, how how do you approach that in terms of, you know, it it is, and a lot of people would view it as risky to buy a vacant property. Are you uh, just so familiar with the market that you're very confident in the ability to lease it up? Or do you oftentimes have tenants who you already know are interested in that property that allow you to kind of de-risk it? Or uh, just curious what your strategy is there. Yeah. So when I buy these properties, um, so it's different. So let, let's say someone's a syndicator of multifamily buildings, right? They have to buy the multifamily building. 
with existing income. They have to put a ton of money into the units. And then they got to hope like, you know, some exited within three years because they were on a multifamily upcycle, but a typical cycle is seven to 10 year exit on multifamily. And they're trying to say you'll hit maybe a 1.8 equity multiple. So almost double your money in that time. If you put a hundred thousand in, you get 200,000 out with the mm-hmm. cash flow and the equity upside. Um, what I like about triple net and, and multifamily is heavy, heavily on debt, right? So if you have a 40 or $50 million multifamily building, there's not too many cash buyers. They're going to be using debt, right? So if the debt mm-hmm. market gets squashed, you're kind of screwed unless you can have a summable loan. Like some of my friends, they've had assumable loans at three point seven percent. They're still able to sell the property, you know, off uh, to another buyer to assume the loan and, and make it work to buy it at a five cap or whatever. But what I do, what I like about triple net is as soon as you sign that lease, you've got the full value of the property there because it's mm-hmm. all about the number of the years left on the lease. And, you know, most of my properties, even after stabilization, they're like four million and below. There's a lot of business owners. There's a lot of doctors. There's people constantly retiring that want to own these types of properties and they can just buy them all cash. So if they can't get good loan terms and I buy a vacant, like we bought a vacant Sonic, I got it for 300,000, 325,000 cash, just got a tenant in there that I just signed up this month. And it's like a tobacco store uh, type thing. I wanted to use the drive-through and now it's worth like a million bucks. So there's someone with cash at a 1031 or just a million bucks sitting around that doesn't want to get a loan. They're older. They don't want to deal with banks and lenders and all that crap. And they're just like, oh, buy it from me at X price, you know? Um, and so there's always buyers for these types of properties. You'll hear in residential, like, where are these commercial buyers? I, you know, I'll never be able to sell the property. Well, that's because you're not in the commercial space. If you're in the commercial space, there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of these buyers that'll buy mm-hmm. millions of buyers that'll buy these properties. You're just not in that network. So that, to you, it appears that there's not anybody there. But what I typically do in my deals is buying for cash. Um, I give them a 7% preferred return once the tenant is in and paying rent. I tell them it's going to be up to a year to get at least up on there. And uh, these are mainly doctors, high net worth people. So they don't need the cash right away. They're more concerned about the equity multiple. They got more cash than they know what to do with. You know, they're just throwing it out into into investments. Um, And then once it gets stabilized, we split the cash flow 50-50 and we split the upside 50-50. Because these are smaller deals. You know, some Mm -hmm. of my my friends, they'll buy an office building, 60 mil, and then they'll put like, you know, uh, 10 million into it. Now it's worth 100 million, you know. And so if they're getting... 30% 30% cut of that, they're making, you know, millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars because it's a bigger property. When you're buying these smaller triple net properties, it's smaller numbers. So I have that split structure, but when you average it out, I'm usually hitting like two to three equity multiple on these smaller, smaller deals. And it's putting in a hundred thousand or more at a time. It just depends on what they want to put in. And, and that's for what hold length of hold period on average? Or maybe a yeah, yeah. So, I, so I have my goal is to stabilize within a year. Nothing's guaranteed. Sometimes it happens sooner. Sometimes it might happen two months after a year's time, and then uh, exit in three years. You know, either okay. do an during exit or a refi. Because if you do a newly minted uh, ten or fifteen year lease, mm-hmm. and then you've got three years of burn off, then you've got a twelve year uh, primary lease term remaining, or you've got a seven year primary lease term remaining. And about seven years is the cutoff for most triple net lenders where they want to see about seven years remaining on the primary lease term. Once you start going below that, there's just a handful of them that'll do a loan on the property because it's too short. Got it. So roughly a year to lease up, another two or three years to um, 
you know, kind of just, just collect the cash flow and get some history and then you're selling it and there still leaves enough term on the lease for the next buyer to get a loan against it if if that's what they want to do. Yeah, a lot of them would pay cash, but yeah, I just yeah. I, I, I want to have it where it works both ways just to keep the pool of buyers on the exit as, as big as possible. Right. And that makes a lot of sense. Cool. Um, is there a particular favorite deal or even just interesting um, deal that you've worked on uh, for yourself or a client that um, would be worth sharing? Uh, yeah. So, so um, one of my clients, uh, we, it's in a very high income area, maybe 160,000. Um, and it was in Georgia and it's a Panera bread and typically Panera breads are, you know, they're on like, third of an acre, maybe half of an acre total, um, with a parking lot and everything. This Panera bread went in to a, an old restaurant that had gone out of business. So it was an oversized lot. So it's about a two acre lot with an oversized parking area. And then it's got the, uh, Panera bread there. So it's a supersized Panera bread, but, but they don't have to pay that much rent per square foot. So like, you know, with a Panera bread with their standard, you know, 3000 square foot model, maybe they're paying something crazy, like you know, $45 a foot or $50 a foot, but then they can have like a 6,000 square foot building. But if they're only paying like 20 bucks a foot, it still works for them, you know, and they've got a bigger, bigger space for more sales. So we haven't done it yet, but, you know, Starbucks approached us at one point to um, deparcelize part of that next to the Panera and because and, and of the extra land and then put a Starbucks on there, you know, and so if we would do that, we would boost the uh, returns on the property e even further from what it is. Gotcha. Th that's great. And, and it's stuff like that, that to me really is the fascinating and, and really rewarding financially and just otherwise part of commercial real estate um, to be able to do creative strategies like that and, and really just increase your returns. Because I imagine, you know, the expectation of doing that was something you were aware of, but you weren't doing it based on the expectation of that happening necessarily. And so when you can pull off something like that, there's a lot of upside um, when you do do so. So that's, that's great. And I think um, that's one of just the huge benefits of the commercial real estate world. Yeah. And then an another deal that we're fixing to close on um, later this month is it was a, um, normally I don't take on retail centers too much for the value add for myself, just because of the extra work and tenants that are involved. You're dealing with, multiple tenants instead of one tenant to lease up and, you know, it's just more work. Um, but there's this developer that developed like this huge apartment complex, like a thousand and something units. And then he had the rest of it that he built out as retail with all these different retail buildings, but his bread and butter was multifamily. So he wanted to recapitalize and he had this one building that was left. And so basically I'm getting like a, Gosh, it's like a 30, it's almost a 40,000 square foot building. Um, it just needs interior finishing, has all plumbing, has all everything um, for like $1.5 million. So I'm getting it for like, I think it's like 30 something bucks a foot. You know, when you construct a building now these days, <laughs> it's $200 a foot, not including the yeah. land. So, yeah. and I just ran like, you know, regular lease comps on it. And in the area, it's like 20 something a foot. Even if I, le even if I lease it up at 15 a foot, uh, you know, you've got, you know, 40,000, 15 a foot, 600,000 NOI, you know, there. 
10, 10, 10 cap, 6 million, five cap, $12 million, you know, um, that, yeah. that's if I just get 15 a foot. So that's a really good deal that, uh, we're, we're closing on, um, this month. And then I got a, um, another deal that I just bought. Uh, so this one is pretty interesting and then you can ask me another question, but then this one's pretty interesting too. Uh, this bank had multiple offers on it. Um, but because of my experience, they chose me because the bank wanted to close by year's end. Uh, it's a small Dairy Queen franchisee that got the whole business loan for the equipment on the inside and constructing the building and everything like seven or eight years ago. And they were only like a one unit franchisee. And then when coronavirus hit, you know, they went under. They didn't have the resources to keep the business. So the bank took this back. And so basically, like, there's a list of tenants that want to lease this space already that inquired with the bank. But the bank just wanted to get it off their books. So they sold it to me. So I picked that up for, let me see, it was like three, I picked it up for 370000 cash. And the building's like only eight years old. And it's got all the equipment in there. It's got like the DQ, everything. I mean, it's a real nice looking building. It's right in front of the grocery. Uh, it's a grocery anchored out parcel. And um, after I get that leased up, um, put maybe a hundred into it. So 500 into it should be worth anywhere between about one, 1. 1.6 to $2 million on that one. Um, wow. Just buying it. And then, and then what you can do is you can either sell it off 1031. My investors can 1031 with me or just take the money that they want. Um, or, um, I can just refinance, I'd say 50% loan to value within six months and, uh, conservatively, and I can pull out, say, you know, 800,000 to a million dollars and get my initial 500,000 back and just do it again. Sure. That's, um, that's incredible. That's a, that's a massive ROI. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's very exciting. So, um, as we get towards kind of wrapping up here, my last question will be for somebody who is um, interested in investing in commercial real estate, they're accredited, higher net worth, they're interested in staying at their job and want to invest. Um, how would you, what would you recommend they do as a, as a first step or a next step um, to, to invest in commercial real estate passive, passively, relatively passively? It depends on who it is. So there's accredited investors where, they want that 7% preferred return day one. They make maybe 100000 a year and they need that preferred return working immediately for them. Hmm. But there's not much equity growth for them on the backside. So, you know, I've got friends that buy retail centers and they're a syndicator and they buy it at a six and a half cap and they hope they become a glorified property manager. They watch over the property manager and they take all these fees. They give them the seven pref right away. But then on the back end, when they sell it in five or six years or whatever, it might only be worth like an eight cap, a blended up return of an eight cap. And then when they exit, there's not much upside there. They just pay like a 7% preferred return to that investor right away. But your overall yield, your equity multiple is very small. And okay. so what, what these accredited investors have to ask themselves are, you know, do they need that 7% preferred return right now? Or these properties, you might not get paid anything for a year, but once it's in and stabilized, you're going to be getting like, much higher pref than what you got with that other property. And you're going to have a higher equity multiple in a shorter period of time because we split the cash flow. So say my stabilized cap rate is 14% cap rate, right? Mm -hmm. So they get 7% preferred return. The remaining 7%, this is just an example, but the remaining 7% is three and a half to me and three and a half to them. So they're getting now a 10 and a half percent preferred cash on cash return. 
plus they're getting right. a higher equity multiple when it exits for, for their money right. in a quicker period of time. Because if the multifamily and all this other stuff takes seven to 10 years to double your money, that's a long time. If I can double my money in a span of a year to three years, then I can like triple my money in the same time span I'm exiting one multifamily property deal that took 10 years to get to a 1.9 equity multiple. So that's why I like the small ball stuff. It's less um, property management intensive. I can buy it anywhere in the country. Um, you know, if I'm buying a retail center that's $12 million, I've got to fly there, see who the other five retail centers are on five corners, who's managing them, what the tenant mix is, what the traffic counts are, if, I'm, if mine's better than theirs. If I'm buying a single tenant dark building, I can get a good retail leasing broker in an area and look at the demographics. And if I get it for the right price, I backfill my risk. Like what you were asking earlier, like how do you, how do you quantify risk? If I'm only paying 300000 for the property, I can get a mom and pop tenant and super high cash flow it and still sell it to someone that's a yield buyer. If I'm paying $1.2 for it and I got to land the Walgreens tenant and they pass, now overpaid for the property. Now I'm in trouble. Right. 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 So it sounds like buying right and leaving yourself optionality on the exit um, is is the way you kind of protect yourself and eliminate some risk there. Um, okay, well, we're kind of getting close to our time here. So uh, I will wrap up. Joel, I want to thank you for your time today. You provided a tremendous amount of knowledge and experience um, to our audience today in the triple net lease world. And you talked about lease types, how to assess a property, uh, how to tell a good deal from a bad deal and where to get started in, in investing in these properties. And I know you offer expertise in the consulting capacity as a broker for buyer, buyers of triple net properties. Uh, what's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you? So the best way is to go to nnninvest.com. And as soon as you get to the front page there at the top where the video is playing, there's a start today button. You click that and you fill out the form. It asks, you know, what's your name, uh, what's your goals with the property, what's your liquidity and net worth, and then you hit submit. And then once I receive that form, then I reach out to talk to you. And, you know, the reason for that is, is I'm so busy that I have to value my time these days. I don't have time to just someone to pick my brain or they just want to learn about whatever. You know, I, I'm not that person, you know. Um, so bigger pockets, there's 15, about 15,000 posts that I did. I'm on two podcasts on there way back in the day um, that they can read through if they have that time. And then also there's a, uh, I wrote a personal book and a business book. And on my website, you can, um, there's a, there's a link. And I think you're going to put it in the show notes too, where they can sure. fill out a form and it's a free PDF book, the triple net riches book that I just wrote last year. Um, and there's a personal book as well about my life story that they can get once they download that. And they're both free. You just got to fill out. The, the information there, but those are the best ways to uh, get in touch with me. Perfect. Thank you for that. And Joel's website, as well as his YouTube channel and the ebook he mentioned will be available and linked in the show notes. So definitely take a look and I encourage you to reach out to Joel. If you're looking for somebody to guide you in purchasing triple net real estate or investing in deals that he may have to offer. That's all for today, folks. Joel, thanks for coming on. And to our audience, thanks for listening. And until next time. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another episode of The Gentle Art of Crushing It. It was an amazing episode. We know we sure learned a lot, and we hope you did as well. We want to take a second and thank you so much for viewing or listening to this episode. And please just know that we only ask for one favor, and that is to make this life magnificent. Thank you, and have a wonderful day.